Yes, sir. Welcome, everybody, to Inside the Mind of Marcus Martinez, one of the hottest podcasts on the planet. I'm your host, Mr. Primetime, the Hotsman Hopeful, the Ghetto Goat, Marcus Martinez. Today, we're talking about the Black family. We're going to discuss the events and decisions throughout American history that had a huge impact on the Black family structure. Is the government to blame for the state of the black family today? Let's discuss Inside the Mind of Marcus Martez. Starts now. Okay, here we are back again. I guess I can say here I am back again. Back on Inside the Mind of Marcus Martez with my special guest, uh, my little sis, Trish. What's up, Trish? Hey, we back. We back. <laughs> we back. What's been good? How you been? I have been good. Uh, just just surviving at this point with everything going on. <laughs> you know what? I had to, uh, I recently, I took like a social media break. I got two weeks. I took, I took two weeks off social media. Like so much was going on in the world, I was like, you know what? I can't deal with this. Uh. So I had to unplug. But yeah, I hear you. There's a lot going on in the world right now. But um, yeah, we were supposed to do this show last night. Yes. <laughs> but I fell asleep. <laughs> you did. I fell asleep. Man, my son, he wouldn't go to sleep. Like. Whenever he with me, he don't never want to take a nap. So I'd be like, Memphis, is you ready to take a nap? No, I don't want to take a nap. And he'd go in the kitchen and pop some no-dos and try to stay up for the whole day. So when it's time for him to go to bed, he, don't even, he never want to go to bed. So when he fell asleep last night, I was tired. And I fell asleep right with him, too. And we did not do this podcast last night. No, we did not. Although I was awake and waiting. <laughs> she was waiting. I woke up this morning like, uh oh. <laughs> it's all good. We get into it now, so we're good. We're back on. So this special, this episode was actually going to be like a three part episode. Um, first, you know, we when we collabed a couple months ago, we wanted to touch base on, um, not only one of, well one of the episodes we want to do was um. You know, our our black man uh, underappreciated, uh, undervalued. Um, but I kind of wanted to take it before we got into the episode. I kind of wanted to go deep uh, step further, and uh, instead of doing that for this episode, I wanted to talk about the black family mm. and uh, the history of the black family and why we why the black family struggles today. So uh, yeah, that's the show, the history of. Uh, the history of the black family. And I'm going to just start off. I'm going to start off with the show and I'm going to talk about four factors that I believe that happened um, that had a huge impact in history to the black family. And uh, after I talk about the four factors, I'm going to let Trish talk about the modern day state of uh, the black family and uh, where we can go from there. So Trish, do you have any comments or questions uh, as I go through this history lesson? Feel free to just jump on in. Okay, cool. I'm excited. This is this is gonna be fun. 
This is it. I was I, I was a little nervous about this episode because it's like I want to touch on so much, and then you know the stuff I am going to go over is not. A lot of people are going to learn some stuff today. Uh-huh. Um, Very important. Yeah, I learned a lot too. So uh, some of the stuff is going to be new, and some people, some of this information might make some folks angry. I just say that you take the time out and do the research yourself, and uh, whatever I say, you look up. You know. Uh-huh. And have and an I, open mind. You know. Yeah, yeah, definitely have an open mind about this because. Um, you know, this is information. This, this is definitely about, you know, not only myself and, you know, our people, but our history. Mm. All right. So to start off, I came up with my four main reasons on what I feel like happened, to, how I feel damaged the Black family. But before I start and give those four reasons, I wanted to share with y'all the family structure Um. In Africa, before before slavery, before uh, the Europeans came into uh, Africa, um, and you know, uh, you know, so, you know, traded goods and services for uh, human beings to be transported across the sea um, and work in the plantations and landmines of the North America and South America. So, but before colonization. You know, the African, the African family is more so, it was all about community, you know, and um, from what I've read in my research, the community and the family structure, um, it varied between like regions and different regions of Africa and different ethnic groups. Um, and it wasn't how we view traditional modern families, you know, so like, you know, Trish, like, Today in the world, we think of marriage, we think of, you know, one man, one woman, correct? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. However, before colonization, that wasn't the primary uh, pattern of marriage. You know, there was monogamous relationships, like, you know, what we know today is, you know, uh, one man, one woman. But there also was polygamous re- relationships where there was a man who had many wives, and there also was... Um, I think it's polygamous relationship where a woman had many husbands. Um, but it, like I say, it varied from region to region, ethnic group to ethnic group, you know, basically like whatever was, uh, what, can I, what can I say, whatever was uh, the need, I guess, at the time. So there was a large, if there was a large population of women and few men, there would be more polygamous relationships and vice versa. However, Polygamous relationships, uh, polygamous marriages, uh, where where it was more one man married to more than one wife, was the dominant pattern of marriages in most of Western Africa. And Western Africa is where a large part of enslaved, well, large part of Africans were taken from Western part of Africa. So, when it comes to uh, the family structure. You know, what we practice here in the Americas is not what our ancestors traditionally practice. So want to get that on the table. Um, polygamous was uh, now uncommon in our home country. Uh, there were mm-hmm. laws and rules that regulated it. Like, you know, it was frowned upon if a man took a new wife without the first wife permission. And, you know, there was an unspoken rule that, you know, a man couldn't 
have wives that he couldn't take care of, you know. So, but it all came back to community. You know, yes, there was like friction and envy and divorce amongst this practice of marriage. However, uh, the idea provided stability and functionality within the family. So wives had their responsibilities, men had their responsibilities. You know, wives managed the children, they worked the fields, they did the marketing and commercial functions for the family business. While the man hunted, gathered, you know, fish, you know, gathered fruits and berries, went to war and took part of the government. So that was the functioning family system uh, in Africa. You know, and this was not only in Africa, but also in North America with the indigenous tribes. This was also a pattern of uh, family, not exactly this way, but something what similar um, to a lot of uh, not African indigenous tribes um, before colonization. So that was more so the family structure, like I said, um, that I've bred on. I'm sure there's more to it, but I'm not a, you know, I don't, my expertise is not African history yet. I've been reading a lot of books, but I'm getting there. Um, but that was more so the family structure in uh, Africa and also uh, Africans before colonization, before Europeans came more so were they practiced Islam. They weren't, you know, Christians before Europeans. Uh, what do you say? No, no, no. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, they they weren't Christian. I, I've read that. I've seen that. Yeah. So we practice more so practice Islam. Um, blacks now. I mean, before before I would say before before the white man, we did not. We were not Christians, and we did not eat pig. So um, that being said, we practice more so the Islamic. Um, you know, religion. Um, so that was Africa before the slave, uh, before slavery. But once the slave trade came, um, which leads to one of my, my first factors, you know, it, it it did a number on not only the African family, but the continent of Africa itself. So the slave trade, Europeans came and took able-bodied men and women from Africa, which pretty much left, you know, not only left Africa unguarded, but, you know, unprotected from European colonization. And, you know, this, it messed up what we had in place, you know, uh, and messed up that our community and messed up what we knew our way of life. And once we got on the boats and they transported across, across um, the ocean, you know, during the Atlantic, the transatlantic slave trade, we lost a lot of that, uh, family structure what uh, we were accustomed to back in the homeland. Um, so that was the, 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 like I said, the first factor was, you know, the slave trade. It kind of, like I said, it uh, uprooted us from what we uh, were accustomed to. So you have the second one I'm going to talk about. Um, my second factor is going to talk about how slavery, um, how I guess the first moment in uh, U.S. history when it comes to the, not only the 
the uh, the disrespect of the black family, also with the disrespect of the black woman. So, um, so you have the you know you have slavery. The second factor um, we talk about the Elizabeth Key case. So you have your slavery in uh, in the thirteen colonies. You know, before America became America, so America didn't get its end uh, become America in 1776. That's when you know, we celebrate the Fourth of July. America gets its independence from Great Britain. But before that, you have your 13 colonies. Um, so way back in 1655, we have this biracial woman named Elizabeth Key. She was born out of wedlock to a, a married English white man, um, and her mother was enslaved. So she felt like since, you know, uh, she was born to a white indentured, um, she married a white indentured servant and, you know, they were Christian and she felt like she should be free and her son should be free because her, you know, uh, parents were free. So she went to court and she sued for her freedom and won. So you have this biracial woman suing the, you know, the, the early colonial government for freedom. So that right there changed the course of history because after Elizabeth Key case, um, in 1662, the Virginia um, Laws Assembly passed a statute where it says basically any woman who has a child, um, the child takes the status of the woman. So if the woman is a enslaved black woman, it doesn't matter if the husband was white and free or whoever, that child takes the status of the black woman. So if the black woman is a slave, the child will grow up basically to be a slave. So hmm. what basically what go ahead. No, I found that interesting. Um interesting. But I'll I'll talk about it later. <laughs> No, you want to talk about it now? Yeah, because I find um, the fact that they make where the status is based off of the woman. However, typically, the race when um, I I I wish I knew when this actually started, but typically your race is based off of your paternal. Um, parent so your your father whatever your father is is typically what you're defined as if that makes sense so if there's an interracial relationship but your father is white then typically um you know you would think it's white it's just funny how it works out because if you have an ounce of black in you you are automatically black right yes Yes. um but it's just interesting how the rules change when it comes to our people. Yeah. Um, so that's why I just found that interesting that the status would be mother, although her the father could be white, the mother is black and enslaved, therefore, or biracial and enslaved, and therefore the child is going to be enslaved as well. It's just funny how things flip. Yes. You know, so I'm glad you brought that up because this is this is important time in history. 
And uh, go back, this is the Elizabeth Key case in uh, 1655. It's important because one, um, the law also goes on to say that um, no, all that all children born in this country shall be held bond or free only according to the condition of the mother. And if any Christian shall commit fornication with a Negro man or woman, he or she so offending shall pay double the fines imposed by the former act. So this is the Virginia, uh, the Virginia law. Mm-hmm. So this is important because, as I said, the child takes the status of the mother. So if a white man were to rape a black woman, a woman would have a child and the child would be the slave. So we want to keep that in mind because it's going to play. This case is so this is why this is the second factor, because this case is so huge. Because it's going to play a huge impact when I get to the fourth factor, when I talk about slave breeding. So um, so this case. Opens the door for centuries of centuries of white men having their way with black women black women because they know that the law will not punish them for uh, raping a black woman. You see how it kind of see how mm-hmm. important important this case is? Mm-hmm. Um, it just basically opens the door for white men sexually exploiting black women that would go on well into the 20th and 20, 21st century. Um, so that's the second factor. And I'm going to tell you how that's going to be important when I get to the fourth factor. So the third factor is the forcible breakup of the Black family. Um, so January 1st, 1808, the United States officially banned the importation of slaves. So uh, going back to, again, the slave trade um, in the late 1500s, early 1600s, you know, um, almost over 200 years of important human trafficking, basically taking Africans from, uh, you know, Blacks from Africa across the, um, across the ocean. Um, so January 1st, 1808, the United States said, okay, no more, no more kidnapping, pretty much. But this is where it gets tricky. Um, even though the United States banned the importation of slaves in 1808, um, there was a huge demand for cotton um, after the 1800s. Um, Eli, Eli Whitney invented the cotton gin, and before the cotton gin, cotton was a very it took a, it took a long time to pretty much produce um, profit from cotton. But once the cotton gin was invented, it allowed the process of taking the seed out, the, I guess, the bulb out of the cotton really uh, faster. Um, and it, and it would it would bring tons of wealth, you know. So it will, you know, there was a global demand for cotton, um, and in the South, the United States was pretty much the only area, uh, only place in the world that could produce um, and fulfill this need for cotton throughout the world. This global demand, and to meet the demand for that global demand for cotton, um, the South needed slave labor. So since the United States banned the importation of slaves, you can't, you know, you couldn't 
feel that need of labor through the slave trade. So what happened was the slaves that uh, lived in states like Virginia, Kentucky, uh, that really weren't really putting out that type of, um, really couldn't produce the type of cotton like the southern state, the southern states would were producing would sell their slaves to the south. <sighs> so um, this was known. This is known as the second migration. It's where enslaved were enslaved blacks were sold south to meet this uh, demand for cotton, and this is where you would get. Um, slaves, uh, enslaved uh, blacks would go to the slave markets and they're going to go on the slave blocks and they would be sold um, like uh, sold like animals. And this is where you get the forcible breakup of the black family where you sell away the mother's kids, you sell away uh, the, the man's loved one. Um, and there's nothing you can do about it. If you resist, you die or you resist, you get flogged. And this type of generational trauma where you, you have this institution that that is forcefully breaking up your family, uh, it, it will have ramifications for centuries. Um, mm. I, I can I, I, I when I was doing the, the research on this, I couldn't imagine someone selling my son away. Mm-hmm. And uh, how can you be right? How can you, you be right? Like, how can you be right in the head? And I can, I, I just can't fathom what our ancestors went through. So, um, and that was, that's my third factor uh, the forceful breakup of the Black family through uh, the second migration of selling slaves. You know, you've seen the movie uh, 12, Years, uh, 12 Years of Slave, right? Yes. Yeah. So uh, Solomon Northcutt, I believe his name is, you know, kidnapping was a way of meeting this demand, um, this slave labor demand. So they would kidnap blacks right. and just force them down south. And there's, I mean, you down in Louisiana, I mean, who gonna come, who gonna come get you down there? You know what I'm saying? Right. You and you have no rights. You in a system that is designed to keep you down. You can only imagine. So the last, the fourth factor I came up with that had a huge impact, I believe, on um, the Black family was uh, slave breeding. So slave breeding, uh, like I talked about the second factor, Elizabeth Key case, uh, the status of the child um, is, is followed by the mother, or I'm going to say it right. The status of the child is defined by the mother's status, basically. Yeah. Yeah. So um, along with the factor of selling slaves during the second migration and with the slave trade being outlawed, you know, and then you got the boom of the cotton industry, more slaves were needed to meet the slave demand. So what white slave owners would do was they would produce their own uh, slave workforce by sexually exploiting enslaved black women. Because they know, because of the Elizabeth Key case, that if they impregnate an enslaved black woman, the child takes the status of the mother, so therefore they have another slave. So they're mm-hmm. basically producing their own labor force. And if they wanted to, they could sell the mother 
Uh, they can sell their child away, pretty much selling their own blood away. But mm -hmm. just because their blood is a little shades darker than theirs, they're not considered pretty much human. Um, so you have that. Um, so basically you have white women. I'm sorry, you have white. Oh, you can say white women too, but more so uh, enslaved. You know, more uh, The slave owners, the overseers, the slave traders pretty much having their way with black women. Um, and if a black woman will resist uh, their advances, they will be severely whipped. If a black man were to step in and try to protect their black woman, they would be hanged, shot, castrated. Mm -hmm. You know, it's kind of how dare you step up for your woman? This is, you know, what I'm saying I am pretty much, you know, enslaved white. No, I'm sorry, pretty much, you know, the white owners view themselves as God. You know, this is, you know. I get to do whatever I want to do, and this is what I want to do. And how dare you step up and try to save your black woman? So, so then now you got this notions of not protecting our women because you know we protect our women, we die. Mm -hmm. um, so like, and also who's going to like you know who's going to stop these enslaved these uh, slave owners, these overseers, these slave traders? Who's going to stop them? Uh, from doing this, you know, most of these slave owners are the politicians who wrote the laws, and here they are. You know, they're not gonna, they're not gonna uh, convict themselves of a crime. You know, right. So there is really nothing as uh, black people we could have done back then. And so, uh, interesting, uh, interesting statistic I found. Um, about slave breeding. Uh, so in the decade before the Civil War, the mulatto population, so mixed uh, people of mixed, mixed race, white and black, okay. um, the, the mulatto population increased from 405, hold on, you know, my, you know I'm bad with numbers, hold on. <laughs> 405, God, told. Take your time. Uh, let's do this. 400,057 in 1850 to 588,363 by 1860. Wow. So you got to think in that decade, all those women that were raped mm -hmm. just to supply a uh, Workers, labor, workers, workers yeah, yeah. So and also, and also, this is kind of off the page, but also a little history fact. You also have the have you ever heard of the three fifth compromise? Yes, yes, so Which made absolutely no sense. <laughs> do you, would you like, do you understand it or you want me to? No, go ahead and explain because I don't want to explain it wrong, but it still it made no sense. So the three-fifth compromise is when um, when the, let me see, it was a law that basically stated when they were trying, when the you know, politicians in early colonial periods were putting together laws on how to govern the country. And they were trying to figure out as far as when it comes to uh, votes in the Congress and votes in the, the House of Representatives and the Senate's which colony would get um, would get representatives based on the population. 
So in the southern colonies, they wanted to count slaves as part of the population so they can get more representation in the House of Representatives. Mm-hmm. But the northern, the northern colonies were like, no, you can't count your slaves because if you count your slaves, that means you're going to have more House representatives and you're going to control pretty much the, the government. So we'll, we'll compromise. How about three-fifths? So out of every five slaves you have, we'll count three. And that's, and that's, your, that's what you get as far as your count for representation. It really, it, and that's what it was, because they didn't see Blacks as human. They saw mm-hmm. Blacks as property. But when it came to representation in the government, they wanted to see Blacks as people. So it was, they were being hypocritical. Mm-hmm. But the three-field the three compromise worked in the favor of the Southern politicians, because if you think about all the, all the Blacks, and I'll say all the Blacks, but majority of Blacks live in the South. So that's how we end up coming up with a slave state because a lot of the politicians and senators and so forth are from the South because they had all the representation because of the slaves that were counted for their vote or counted for their representation. So you have a three-fifth compromise. And so if you have all these white men raping and producing children by black, producing children with black women and using those children to count as part of the population so they can stay in power. That's how the game was working. Yeah. So, uh, but also with the slave breeding, not only did the white slave owners uh, produce their own uh, labor force it also would pretty much like pair uh the black uh enslaved black man with the black woman and have them create kids um and i did some research on this and if there's there's a period in time uh during the great depression where uh it's a program called the works progress administration Um, this program was set up during the great depression in which formerly enslaved Blacks were interviewed and they would share the stories and memories of slavery in the South. So between 1936 and 1938, more than 2,000 former slaves from 17 states narrated their recollections of slavery uh, through through this program. And one of the slave narratives that I read talks about how the slave owner on this particular plantation would allow the uh, the male slave, which back then they were known as studs and bucks. You ever heard Turner? You ever heard the term young buck? Yes. 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 Mm-hmm. Young buck comes from a comes from as a slavery term as uh, comes from the, from plantation. Uh, actually, mm-hmm. comes. Um, in 1825, a Scottish physician named Alexander Monroe testified that, generally speaking, um, the penis is larger in the Negro than the European. And the word buck is defined um, as the animalistic lust of a typical male Negro slave in the American, slough, uh, American South. So you would have, um, so on the plantation, you have bucks and studs. 
and the enslaved, uh, I'm sorry, the slave owners would pair, um, you know, the bucks and studs with uh, big black women, which we would know as uh, mammies mm-hmm. or or wenches. Did you ever grow, your grandma ever call you a wench? Uh, no, my, <laughs> my grandmother is from Caribbean descent. So there's certain things that, <laughs> yeah, that I've heard the term, um, wench, but it wouldn't have been used in my house. I say that because I remember my grandma calling my cousin a wench when I was like in grade school. Oh, wow. I, never knew, I never knew what it was, but it's kind of like, you know. Now like, you know. Now I know. Right. <laughs> like, reading this, like, oh man, my grandma used to say that. <clears throat> um, so they would pair the bucks and the studs with some big mammies, and their sole job was to bear children. Um, so you have the uh, being slave uh black man with three three mammies, and all his job is just to have sex and just Mm-hmm. And we're supposed to pop out kids. Um, and this was a way of uh, this was, and this is, and this played a factor in the in the how it had effect on uh, the black family because, like, it's like there's no structure there. You're not you're not viewed as you know. They didn't recognize marriages on the plantation, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's pretty much whatever. Whatever the white man said was was law. Um, and I also wanted to not to cut you off. I wanted to point out um, the fact that they are bearing these children, and and you know, it wasn't a joyous thing to be pregnant. It it was like the joy was um, temporary to be pregnant back in that time. Um, because you have, you know that you are birthing another slave. You know that your your days with the child that you carried is numbered. You know, especially if you're um, a mammy, and you know that your job is just to bear children. Uh, plenty of times they gave birth. Well, majority, I would say, all the time they gave birth in the most inhumane way where they didn't have any medical assistance, they didn't have doctors, you know, they relied on the other slaves to help them. So uh, if you can only imagine if anyone that's one of your listeners are listening and you've had children, childbirth is no joke. Mm. Childbirth is no joke. And to think about the fact that these women, our ancestors had to have children without any help and not only have them, but have them and have them snatched away. You know, plenty of times the slave owner would hear that the child was born and come and get them. And so you didn't have that time to bond with your child. You know, your child was taken, uh, and, and or your child after they got to a certain age and they're still pretty much children, but if you have a male child, you know, they look at that, like you said, as a young buck. And they start looking at the form of the child and how strong the child is, you know, and then they sell that child off and you never see your child again. 
Nope. So I, I also I I just wanted to point that out that you know that for me is the craziest thing to to birth a child and have your child taken. Mm. Generational or, trauma. Yeah, generational trauma for sure. And 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 that and history always repeats itself. And you're going to talk about later on how that still was happening. You know. Mm-hmm. 100 years later uh and you wonder why what and, and looking back and talking about this and you wonder why right now black women have a higher mortality rate when it comes to bearing kids than any other race because of what they went through during i mean i've read during these wpa interviews i'm talking about <laughs> three sets of tw- i'm talking about you know three sets of twins type of childbearing you know mm. Uh, the most I read was uh, enslaved black woman giving birth to 22 children. Mm. I'm talking about give birth, bam, pregnant again. Give birth, bam, pregnant again. And uh, here's another. I'll go ahead. I couldn't imagine. I, I, hell, I couldn't imagine. <laughs> I bet. Here's an interesting. Here's an interesting fact. Let me ask you this: How much would you say that an ins uh, a mammy would sell for in today's dollars? How much? How much would you say? Mm, a million. Mm, that's good. That's uh, that's a good. That's a good guess. An enslaved <laughs> woman. Say what? That says more than that, isn't it? No, no, it, it, it was not that high, but it was a good guess though. Uh, An enslaved woman who was a good breeder, which they were called a good breeder in 1850, would sell for in today's dollars one hundred and seventy-five thousand eleven dollars and ninety-two cents. Wow! So when I tell you this, when I tell you that slavery brought in dollars for America. Come on. Why do you think there are so many laws in place for runaways? Right. Why do you think Harriet Tubman had a $50,000 bounty on her head? I think it was $50,000. But it was after Harriet because she was taking, you think about you take, she up here taking quarter, $175,000. No. No. So slavery was a big deal, y'all. Yeah. Um, Frederick Douglass, Frederick Douglass, the father of black history, said in his autobiography, My Bondage, My Freedom, he goes, my poor mother, who, like many other slave women, had many children, but no family. Uh. Um, Frederick Douglass' mother, uh, Frederick Douglass, he saw his mother only five times throughout his life. And the only way he saw his mother was that his mother would have to leave her plantation to go visit him. I think he was about, eh, I think he's about 10 miles away. No, five to 10 miles away. So after working in the fields, uh, she would sneak off at night to go see him. And she had to be back at her plantation in the morning or she would get flogged. So um, that's how. Um, that's how messed up the black family was because of slavery. That, no, 
a mother had to travel at night five miles to see their son or see their see her child. Uh-huh. So after slavery, Civil War 1865, I mean, you know, the black family wasn't left with much. Uh, we didn't get any financial compensation for the labor that we provided America for uh, 165 plus some years. Uh, all that labor that we provided, we did not get a cent for. So after the Civil War, um, no, it was reconstruction. You no, know, black people did a little bit for themselves. You know, after the couple of amendments were passed, 13, 14, and 15th Amendment, uh, blacks, you know, saw some political gains. And, you know, there was the Freeman Borough um, set up, you know, they set up historically black colleges like Fisk University and Hampton. Uh, so there were some little gains after black, for blacks after the Civil War. But uh, once Reconstruction ended, I want to say 1877, I'm not sure. Um, a lot of those gains by Blacks were taken away. Um, you know, you have, you get in the era of lynchings, you get in the era of the KKK, which enforced Black codes were pretty much where it was a law. I mean, it was pretty much uh, if you were Black, you had no rights. And uh, it pretty much... I don't say against the law to be black. Is that what I'm trying to say? Might as well have um, been. <laughs> no, like if you're a black, you pretty much you're. It's, it's either you're. I don't. I don't even know how to. You're not human. Yeah, you're just not yeah. human. You know, just you know. And if you try to do anything, you got like I said, the KKK, and pretty much the KKK was the politicians. Mm-hmm. You know, like I said, it was a slave state going back to the Three-Fifths Compromise and the politicians that are put in, the, in office. Um, and then, you know, just, and after that, you just had an attack on the Black man through that um, convict leasing, which, you know, uh, if you ever seen the documentary, the 13th, I believe, it talks about, um, talk about the Black Codes. So pretty much if you're black and if you are not found pretty much working or you do anything that's petty, like gambling or being after being outside after curfew, you pretty much go to jail and you mm-hmm. work in the, mines, in the fields. So that's convict leasing. So um, and to finish up my spiel, I know I've been talking about 40 minutes. Good night. Um <laughs> To spend to finish up my spiel in uh, 1908, W.E. Du Bois, one of the um, uh, prominent black voices in black history, um, he said he assured that the essential features uh, central features of Negro slavery in America was no legal marriage, no legal family, no legal control over children. And, and that's my spiel on how I feel. All those factors in history played a factor in how the black family structure. Um, I don't know how the black family, the trauma of generation, the trauma of the history of our past had effect on um, us today. So, Trish, you go ahead and take it now and how and talk about how what I talked about how it had how it has had an impact on today today's modern black family all right all right well um 
enjoyed your 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 piece honestly there was a lot of stuff that um I knew about but there was some stuff that I didn't and so it was good to um hear the history dating back that far well today we see that um there are a lot of black families that are missing the the male right and we have uh, a need for fathers in the home we we see that all the time you know black families don't have fathers in the home uh which affects just the dynamic you know we have single mothers who are working hard to raise their children and a lot of times we have uh families that don't have the father in the home for multiple reasons right there are the typical things well we just didn't work out so we're not together <laughs> um yeah. or there there are you know bad choosing uh bad partnerships all of that however the majority typically is black men are incarcerated right mm-hmm. so we have a lot of black men that are in the prison system who have children who have have been stripped away from their families a lot of the times what i want to focus on are the uh injustices throughout the government that um things the laws and and things that have been put in place to almost enforce the split up of the home um you talked about the involuntary breakdown of the black family and i wanted to touch on the things that the government has put in place to almost make it voluntary to split up the black family now now we hear a lot of women who have children as meal tickets or they have children in order to, you know, secure the back uh, <laughs> um, and things like that that's going on now without the process of how damaging that is. And I feel that it's also something that has been put in place subconsciously. So what I wanted to talk about first was uh, just touch on the crack cocaine epidemic from the 80s. Okay, so cocaine in the 80s was a huge thing we saw it in movies um and that is the powdered substance of that drug uh we it was glamorized right so you saw it in movies it it was glamorized it was a thing that everyone was doing studio 54 things like that celebrities were doing it it was normal It, it was okay and typically when we saw it in movies and it was glamorized it's always with our uh, Caucasian friends, right? Mm-hmm. However, uh, there was a time where cocaine was just a little harder to make. And so they that's where crack came in. And crack is the same thing as cocaine. Crack is just the rock form of that drug. However, crack was more so pushed in the minority community communities so the lower income minority communities would have access to crack 
a lot of times that's how they made their money. Uh, it was easier to sell. Production was faster on it because you didn't have to break it down. And that started the crack cocaine epidemic. Here's the thing, which I found interesting. The sentencing on crack, the crack rock, was heavier than the sentencing on powder cocaine. Mm. Which is important because, like I said earlier, crack rock was found in the African-American lower income communities. So if you were African-American, nine times out of 10, you had access to the crack rock or, you know, you were in a community that that was going on, selling it, smoking it, whatever the, the case may be. But the sentencing in the, the 80s was 100 to 1. It was 100 to 1 ratio. Okay, so breaking that down, basically, if you had five grams of crack rock, that was equivalent to you having 500 grams of powder cocaine. Wow. Okay, and with that being said, that would be like a five-year sentence. So you have someone who's, let's just say you have a Black person who has five grams of crack rock. And they would get five years. You find a white person with 500 grams of powder cocaine, and they would get the same sentence. Wow. That's insane to me. Um, because, again, it's the same drug it's not a different drug it's just in a different form just one form was you know available to the elite and the other form was not one form was glamorized and and okay and pushed and promoted you know through media and through movies and the other form was not and typically when you saw black people on film doing drugs they're always down and out right it's mm -hmm. not so glamorous it's not like this is the cool thing to do and we're gonna go no it it's it's you're down and out you're you're strung out you know you're erratic and all types of stuff so that's the image that they put out there and that's also uh, a huge issue moving forward because 88 percent of the imprisonments from the crack cocaine epidemic were African-American. Mm. Majority of their sentences were 10 to 20 years. Okay. Mm. Um, moving on, fast forward to 2010. And the race. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Trish. To add on that, you were talking about that. I remember, remember the three strikes rule? Yes. Clinton, I remember, uh, I want to say 92, Clinton administration maybe 94, I'm not sure, they signed in the law the three strikes rule. So if you get busted three times, you're three times, uh, three times after the third time, it's life, I believe. Life in prison. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So just off what you had just said, you get busted three times, you're gone. 25 to life. And those laws were typically made for the Black community and they say it's for everyone however if predominantly black people are using crack rock then obviously those laws were made for black people they just can't come out and say hey this is for y'all you know um 
in 2010, we had the ratio moved down. They, they decreased the ratio from 100 to 1 for sentencing to 18 to 1. Which, if you think about it, is still silly considering it's the same drug. So you would think it'd be, what, 1 to 1, right? Mm-hmm. But it's not. So um, there's that. So the, a lot of our, our men go to jail behind these drugs. We could equate that to today because crack cocaine is as big. It's not as big as the discrepancy with weed, right? Mm-hmm. Marijuana um, is that in itself is crazy. We have so many black men who are in prison over marijuana that they are now making legal. However, we have plenty of our black men in jail for marijuana. None of their sentences are being overturned. They're not being released. But yet the country, because they want to make it legal in in some states, they can make money off of it, tax it, and it's okay. Yeah. Just, a, just a little, you know, tidbit that I find is such a contradiction. Um, so, yeah. That that's that's that right. Then we talk about trade schools. You know, back in the time day, back in the time. Sorry, back in the day uh, <laughs> in slavery, you worked with your hands, right? Mm-hmm. That's how you provided, or I mean, you provided for your slave owner with your hands. And then once you know the laws were overturned, and we can say black people were quote unquote free. You worked with your hands because why they didn't allow black people to be educated. Right. Right. So there's no education. There's no formal training. So you only could do, you could provide for your family with your hands, with what you know. Um, So then there's that once they took away trade, you know, and they took that away, I firmly believe by saying hey education like once time started passing and it was like education is important and now now you know there are so many people that shy away from trade mm-hmm. right it's always about that four-year degree i gotta go to that university and get that four-year degree but there's so many of our people that are in debt behind this four-year degree i'm not knocking anyone that decides to go get a four-year degree That's not what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. But what I am saying is because there was such an emphasis put on education later on, a lot of Black people stopped doing trade. And then who do you see doing trade now? You see white people, you see Mexicans. That's where the money is. Yeah. If you really think about it, plumbing, electrician, uh, uh, architect, all that stuff is with your hands and it doesn't take that long to learn and it doesn't cost you that much money. So now we have our black people who owe Sally Mae thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands of dollars. And when they get their degree and come out, how many of them are able to actually get a job in the field that they studied for? I can tell you, I tell you right now, I do not use my degree. Yeah. However, I, I did learn some valuable lessons in, in college, but I do not use my degree. 
absolutely and and that's the thing you can learn all that but I've seen so many people that have degrees and they're working in fast food restaurants or they're working in retail. I'm not saying anything is wrong with fast food. I work, I worked there for a very long time, but <laughs> what I'm saying is it's unfortunate to me that trade used to be the way trade was working with your hands was how black men provided. And when you took that away, it put it in a, in a sense where, okay, how else am I going to provide, right? How else am I going to take care of my family? Um, So there's Um, just all these different things. Go ahead, I'm sorry. Booker T. Washington was big on uh, Black people working for themselves and building their own with their hands. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and they did do that. You have, you know, you have Rosewood and you have... Tulsa, Black Wall Street, Street. you know, there were plenty of times in history where Black people, you know, it's funny when they say, when, when you hear, why can't you guys just do pick up, pick yourself up by your bootstraps? Well, they have, we did plenty of times. Every time we build something, you burn it down and And you burn it down or you kill our men or you lynch us or, you know, it's, it's just not sitting right with y'all, you know? Um, yeah, so salty. So uh those are just some examples of how the breakdown of the black family comes along further. You know, when you look at the man, the man is supposed to be the head, he's supposed to be the protector, protector, he's supposed to be the provider of the home. And if there are things put in place to remove him, then what you're left with is a bunch of Women and single mothers spending for themselves. Now, yes, I know. I think I know where you're going, but I just wanted to jump in real quick. And you were just talking about men not being present in the home, women having to provide. And Mm -hmm. I I want you to talk about the welfare system Mm -hmm. and how that was set up to strategically keep the black man out of the house. Now, before she jumps in that, I want y'all to understand. I want y'all to understand this. So, America, when it comes to government and uh, what's the, uh, what's, what's, what's it called? Systemic relations? Systemic, Systemic racism. racism? Yeah. You know, you have to understand, like, places, how, like, when Black people are, uh, when they have, like, our, when we come from, like, lower income, the poverty, the hood, the ghetto, it's not, majority of the time, it's not our desire to live that way. Mm-hmm. We are faced, and we are faced, the Blacks in America, I talked about the, I talked about the history of Blacks in America. But when you have a system set in place to keep you down, not only keep you down, but it doesn't give you many resources and avenues to come up. You know, you talk about segregation, you talk about the lynchings, you talk about, you know, the violence. And every time we did do something, Black Wall Street, Rosewood, and white folks get a little jelly, and then they want to come burn down your towns. So... It's not like 
we chose to live or our ancestors chose to live in poverty. It's just like we had no other way. So when you don't have no rights, I'm going to say we don't have no rights, you can't vote, you can't get no job, you can't get fair you know, treatment by the government, fair treatment by society, you don't get equal opportunities, and all they want to give you is scraps and push you in, you know, government projects, and it doesn't leave us with much, many resources. Mm. But really, the only resources that was really given to us was the welfare system. Mm. And that's what I want you to talk about how the welfare system I, I don't really have much knowledge on it but I know you do yes let's get into the welfare system so um really quickly basically there was a movement um like a women's rights movement in the uh want to say in the 60s so this was prior to the crack cocaine um, epidemic before it got to the height, okay? And so in the 60s, it was this fight for welfare uh, um, that that was where it kind of started. And it black women were the face of that um if you go back and you know look it up and do the research you'll see that it was kind of targeted towards african american yes we had all there was all women out there uh caucasian and black however it was targeted more so to black women and you know welfare what it is today is if you're in a low income you have to um you not you have to but if you have low income and you have children and you need help and assistance then great this is how we're going to help you this was the government's olive branch so to speak of this is how we're going to we're going to help these families right however there was a man in the house rule and when i was looking at this up i've always heard of it however I never really looked at the details behind it until I researched it. So I want to read a quote. It says, a child who otherwise qualified for welfare benefits was denied those benefits if the child's mother was living with or having relations with any single or able-bodied male. The male was considered a substitute father, even if the male was not supporting the child. Okay, so basically it's saying we gonna help you, but you can't you can't have no man. You know, we're not going to help the family. We're going to help this single mother. Mm. Which if you think about it, if you are in a in a time period where men are it's hard for black men to get work or they're being arrested, whatever the case may be. Now you have this single woman, and if she so decides to meet someone else, to move on, to fall in love, to date, and they she's on welfare, they can take away her assistance because now she's 
she has a male in the home. And it, it, it's called the man in house rule. You mm. could not have a man in your home. You could not have an able-bodied male in your home. You could not be in relations with an able-bodied male. Even if you had children and you needed help and you were technically, you're single. You could not have a male in your home and expect to get help from the government. If you look deeper into this, it's it's a furthermore of a breakdown. I know even in this day and age, so many women, you know, don't some women are out here lying. They they gotta tell the government, you know, I don't have nobody else in my house but me and my kids. Why? Because if the government finds out, you will not get any assistance and you could very well need assistance you know um the system is also weirdly set up for you know single women who just need some help single men who just need some help will not be able to get it unless they have a child Mm. so now here you are trying to live right doing the right thing you're trying to work may not be making as much money as you need to may just need a little assistance whether it be food stamps whether it be you know rental assistance whatever the kid medical the biggest ones are food and medical right and so you might need a little assistance with that but sorry can't help you because you don't have children so now it's encouraging I've heard people say, well, dang, I guess I'll, I'll just, I mean, shoot. Do I need to have a baby? Is that how they're going to help? Or mm-hmm. I've heard that people that have had a child after the fact, like, you know how quick it was for me to get assistance now that I have this child versus when I tried to apply prior. So it's all set up really for the, the breakdown of the family. Now, if you want this assistance, then the man needs he needs to be gone. Right. So it, it makes be there. Yeah. And so if you think about it, right? If the government the government becomes the man. Yeah. You rely the government on the- becomes the man. Mm-hmm. He's taking care of you. He's providing for you. You know, and there are so many women that will be ready to remove the male from their home. Because why? I know I could go down there and give me a little assistance. I know I can give me some welfare. I know I can give me some food stamps. And I won't have to deal with you. Yep. So that's where the breakdown versus... You know, back then in slavery time when the man was being ripped away and, you know, it was the like you never knew when he something would happen or who he was going to piss off that day. And you weren't sure if your husband was coming home or if the father of your children were coming home. And that was something that was feared where and and it was forcefully taken away whereas to now it's voluntarily given away mm. yep because there are laws in place 
that can almost like the black man is almost been reduced to being just the provider and if you reduced him to just being the provider and he ain't doing what he needs to do there are programs in place that can replace him mm-hmm. so and yeah then, and then you, if, you know, that, then there's that and if the cops ain't trying to shoot you mm. you ain't getting locked up for a gram of, gram of weed Mm-hmm. Can't find no job. Yeah, because once you go in the system, now no. you come out, what can you do? Nothing. So it's already tarnished your, your record. There's nothing that you can do. And then there's laws in place that, oh, are you a felon? Guess what? Can't work. Like, it's, it's insane. Yeah. So there's all types of things. And we rarely ever hear about other races going through what the black race goes through. It's, it's other, definitely it's, systematic. You know, every other race strength is the family. Mm-hmm. You know, um, there's never any laws set in place to keep any other race down, you know. Uh, but, you know, it's the way, the way this system set up is the to not only destroy the black family, but the black man and woman. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because um, we're stronger together. Yep. 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 I, I appreciate that. That was that was good. That was good knowledge you dropped, sis. That was uh well, I tried. I tried. <laughs> I, I, I it was just I was just thinking about a lot of that stuff. I've heard about the welfare system and how it is designed to keep the man out. Mm-hmm. Like, I heard about it by like, you know, once you talked about it, I was like, man, this is this is deep. The man in the house rule really blew me. That yeah. blew me. I was like, really? Mm-hmm. Like, I heard <laughs> about it, but to read that it's actually a real thing, like, this is not it's crazy. Like you can't have a man in your home. Yeah, and it's funny. That's that's. I guess that's that's my that's gonna be our cue to close out this this episode because I got a quote that's gonna lead us to our next time we get together. Um, mm-hmm. for our next episode. Um. Uh, what's the rule? What's the name of the rule you just said? I'm sorry, I've been smoking. Man in the house rule. The man in the house rule. Okay. Mm-hmm. So to piggyback off the man and house rule to close out this podcast, I'm gonna give y'all uh, a little Wu Tang, um, Wu Tang, the album, the saga continues. Track ten is called Family Skit, and they have a speech by um, a lady. Her name is Sh- uh, Shirazad Ali. I think I said that right, Shirazad Ali. Um, she is from Atlanta, Georgia. Matter of fact. Uh, ooh, ooh, <laughs> um, she's written several books. Uh, one of those books being The Black Man's Guide to Understanding the Black Woman. Uh, mm. I, have not, I have not read this book, but I sh- will shortly. Um, 
so she wrote this book in 1989. Apparently, it was a controversial thing back in the day. Um, but in a speech that she does that's played on this Wu-Tang album, um, uh, Ms. Ali speaks about the need for strong family units in the African-American community to build a community. And this is, what, this is how the skit goes. This is what she says in the speech. She goes, and I quote, they did not tell us that all of that, being my own person and being independent will lead to separation, loneliness, celibacy, and lesbianism. They didn't tell us that if you give up the man, you're gonna take one of these things and it gets worse and it will destroy your nation. They make us think that it was some kind of glorified position to brag about the fact that I got my own job, my own credit card, my own car, so I don't need a man. I don't even know how we got that mixed up. Ain't none of that got anything to do with, with having been with no man. We have some serious relationship problems. You know, over 60% of our women are single, widowed, separated, or divorced, or divorced. They don't have a man. They need fathers. They need protection. To raise a child, you need a parental coalition of a man and a woman. We have sons. By not having a father in the home, they don't know how to respect women. They may bring the welfare system in and tell us in order to feed and clothe and house our children, we have to give up our man. We have to put the man out of the house. When the white farm wife goes to the government for a subsidy for the farm, they don't tell them to get rid of the farm. They keep that family together. But in the black community, they make a requirement because mm. they want to keep endorsing into the black community that the black man is no good. And mm. wow. Yep. So that leads uh hey Wu Tang ain't nothing to fuck with. <laughs> Hey, that's a dope album though. I like it. But uh yeah, I found when I I was I don't know, like when I when I do my podcast and I be thinking, I'll be sitting in my car and I'll be like having these like moments and like they like things just pop into my head and this came out of nowhere. I was like, yes, I gotta put this on the episode. Yeah, it was it was dope. It, it was definitely and it, and it's funny how it 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 flow with how you were talking about that rule. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, but that leads us to the next time we get together. Um, next time we're going to talk about the black man. Are we are we underappreciated? Are we undervalued? We'll have that discussion. Next time we get together. This was good. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it was, I like this. It was it was nice. I like this. Yeah. Um, it was uh, it was good. It's kind of like it's kind. I kind of feel kind of excited that I, I fell asleep last night because it gave me an extra day to prepare. I can't. <laughs> oh, it was great. I appreciate all my listeners for tuning in today. If you haven't already, hit the subscribe button so you don't miss the episode. To support this podcast, you can find a link in the bio. I thank you in advance. Music provided by Selly on the beat. If all your music collab, get at him on the ground. Selly underscore OTB. Today's affirmation. 
I am in control of my emotions. They are not in control of me. I am in control of my emotions. They are not in control of me. So I'm a black, indigenous, and people of color. Stay strong. Keep your head up. We got this. Shout out to my ancestors. Thank you for all that you sacrifice. It's been a pleasure. As always, be peace, be love, be happy. Till next episode, parade out. <laughs>